going to continue to worship him now through the teaching of his word. And, and let me start by asking you this question. How many of you have ever, ever been lost? I mean, truly lost. Like you knew you didn't know where you were and you didn't know how to fix it. Now, prior to GPS. And Travis, I'm with you, brother. Listen, I, I told you before, I'm a redneck kid. I grew up in North Mississippi. And, and this is not a political statement. This is just a fact. We were a gun culture. We hunted everything. If you could eat it, we hunted it. That's just the way it worked in my culture growing up. And deer hunting was a big season for us. It was a lot longer than deer season here. And, and we were one of those families that you got out in the woods before the sun came up. So it's dark when you go in. And you, if you didn't kill anything, you don't leave until it's dark again. And I was about nine or 10 years old, uh, nine when I killed my first deer. And so about nine or 10. And so I go into the woods that morning. And, and when I tell you it is dark, I can't begin to tell you. This is before I was a border patrol agent, no night vision, no nothing. It was just dark. And so you use light, you get to your stand. And so I hunted all morning, didn't get anything, come down at lunchtime, go back to our cabin, which was about two, two miles away. You had to walk on foot. We didn't have four wheelers back in those days. You had to walk about two miles, ate lunch. And when I left, when I left at lunch that day to go back to the woods, I left a very important piece of equipment I'll get to in just a moment. And so I go back into the woods. I get back to my deer stand. And, and my grandmother on my dad's side, Mamaw Ozell, we called her. Ozell was always coming up with words that were close to words, but they weren't real words. And so this is on the left-hand side. This is what my grandmother would call dusky dark. She didn't call it, it was dusky. Dusky's not a word, by the way. It's dusk. So, so, but it was dusky dark. Well, dusky dark in the woods is how dark? It's pitch black dark, right? So, so, so if you've got a little bit of light and you're not in the woods, you can see a little bit. But when you're dead in the woods at dusky dark, well, y'all know how it is at winter, right? Like when the sun drops, it gets dark how quick? Like this. You know, you know, summertime, sun goes down, it stays light for another hour. Not wintertime in Mississippi. Sun goes down. And so I, I, I made a mistake. I waited till literally the sun had gone down. By the time I reached the bottom of my stand and walked about 25 yards, I realized I'm in trouble because you couldn't see a thing. And here's how I knew I was in trouble because I reached in my pocket for my handy-dandy flashlight, and guess what was still sitting on the table at the cabin? My handy-dandy flashlight. And at 9 or 10 years old, there was not panic, and I'm just being honest, there wasn't panic. My dad, my dad had grown me up well, raised me well. He had placed lots of responsibility on my shoulders, lots of trust in me. So my dad had always taught me, if you got a gun, you're good. And, and so I got a gun. And that's all I got. And I'm thinking, this ain't good. Because here, here's what I was afraid of. No kidding. I wasn't afraid of being lost. I was afraid of spending the night in the woods because it was cold. It was eight degrees that day. And so I was like, I don't know that I would survive this. I think I will. And so I wasn't about to camp out. I'm about to keep walking. I have no idea where I'm going because when, it, when I tell you it's dark, I'm, I'm, I'm saying, y'all, you can't see anything. There's no path. I'm, so I'm kind of going in a direction. There's no cell phone, so there's no GPS, no Siri to help you out on your Apple phone. There, there's no compass. I'm just kind of walking in woods where I cannot see. But yet I keep reminding myself, I got a gun, so it's all good. And, and so, so I'm walking, not really knowing where I'm going. And, and, and here's, you know, here was the issue for me. I'm, I'm a kid, but I'm headed towards young manhood. I'm, I'm, I'm a tweener. I'm preteen, right? And, and so here was the thought that kept coming through my mind. If they have to come find me, I will never live this down. And so I am trying to get out of the woods, but get out fast because I don't want them to come find me because that is a no-go in manland in North Mississippi. Don't you dare get lost and somebody else have to come get you. 
And so I'm trying to get out of the woods. And I don't know if you've ever been in the woods at night before, but when you reach an opening like a field, it's lighter. The sky is brighter than when it is when you're just in the darkness of the woods. And so I looked, and I could tell there was an opening. I'm like, man, what the heck? Let's walk that way. And so I go to the opening because I'm thinking maybe I can see something that will tell me where I am. And when I stepped out into the opening, this is what I saw. So when you look on the bottom right-hand side of the pictures, I saw a radio tower, and as soon as I saw it, y'all, my spirits were back up here because that radio tower was less than a quarter of a mile from the back porch of our hunting cabin. And I knew, man, if I can just follow that light, I'm going to get right back on track. Here was the only problem. I had no idea the stuff I was about to walk through to follow that light because I wasn't on a path. In Mississippi, we have things called brars, briars is what they're called, but we called them brars. And so it was about to be messy, but I had a light that put me back on track. Well, church, I share that with you because we're going to talk about a character today you've been introduced to named Saul, later on named Paul. We'll talk about that in a minute. But Saul is about to be introduced to a light, and here's why he was introduced to that light. is because he was in opposition to the Lord. Now, remember, he is not a Christ follower at this point. He's about to become one. But he's not a Christ follower because he was in opposition to the path God had in store for him. So please hear me. Before you were a Jesus follower, God already had a path for you in mind. And he did something to encounter you so that you would get on the track that he had laid out for you. So Saul is walking along and he's doing everything but follow Jesus. In fact, he's doing everything in his power to destroy Jesus' followers. And he encounters God in a light. And from that point forward, there was a different track he was on. Here's the deal. Here's why he does that. It may be corrective, but it's not for punishment. God so loves you. Please hear me. If you're a Jesus lover this morning, a Christian, a Christ follower, he so loves you that when you go off the track, he comes and encounters you in a powerful way to get you back on the track because he knows that's what's best for you. It's not to get you. It's not to punish you, get even with you, cause you misery, but he will encounter you in a very tangible, physical, spiritual, emotional way. Why? To get you back on the path that he knows is right for you. So this morning, here's what I want you to contemplate. I I want you to think about where you are. You may love Jesus with all your heart and be following him, or you may never have professed Jesus as your savior. But let me tell you something. Here's what the Bible is going to teach you today. He has a path for you, and you didn't land here haphazardly today. You didn't land here by chance. He brought you here because he wants you to get on the right track. And so I want you to process what that means for you as we go through our text. And we're going to land somewhere with this, trust me. We're going to land with what we're supposed to do about it. But I want you personally to think about what God is doing in relationship to you and the path either you've slipped off of, or maybe you're dead in the center of of what God is going to have you do about this path he's calling you back to. So let's pray. Let's get ready to study and worship the Lord with our minds this morning. Father, thank you for the worship you've already afforded us to give to you. Remind us right now, through your spirit, worship's not ours. It's, It's what we give. And so thank you. We've been able to give you worship. Thank you for Mike and Sue that they worshiped you through obedience of baptism. Thank you that we got to be a part of that, to witness that to celebrate that. Thank you for the songs that Shad and the team led us to sing as we emotionally engage you in worship. But Father, now we ask that you would just empower our minds, that through your Holy Spirit, you would impart to us your wisdom to, Father, pick apart a passage of Scripture that is so infinite in wealth and depth that we could not comprehend it of our own. So Lord, give us the gift of wisdom so we can understand, but mostly, Father, more than that, beyond just understanding, we don't want to just get it, Father, we want to get it. 
So give us wisdom to apply what we learn. That, Father, we again, this day and every day forward, will be more so on the path than ever before. Give us that wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. So church, read with me, if you would, starting there in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Now, remember, the last time we introduced you to Saul, there's a couple things going on. He's the guy that's standing there holding the, the cloaks or the coats of the people who are stoning Stephen. But, but remember, he was not innocent whatsoever. The, the wording Luke used there indicated that not only did he agree with it, but he authorized it. So either he was a member of the Sanhedrin or he was at least, at the very least, a Pharisee who had lots of political clout with the Sanhedrin. And so he's not sitting there watching. He is actually there authorizing the action that they're taking. Remember, it is illegal because the Jews didn't have the authority within the Roman Empire to condemn somebody to death. So this is like vigilante mob stuff. This is supposed to be the most righteous, most holy group of people that do nothing else than lead people to God, and yet they're acting like a vigilante mob. After that, remember what it said. Luke said, immediately, immediately persecution broke out in Jerusalem. So, so all of these Hellenistic, these Greek Christians are scattering all over the place. And one of the places they go is right here. I'll show you on the map. If you look up in the top right of the map, that is Damascus. That is six days on foot from Jerusalem. So, so this is where our story is going to take us. And this is how far Saul wants to go to persecute Christians. It doesn't satisfy his anger and his hatred that he's murdered people and imprisoned people in Jerusalem. He wants to go six days away because he found out that they were still there. So, so the word breathing here doesn't mean breathing. You know, I think of breathing, I think of Star Wars and, and, and you know, Darth Vader. <sighs> it's not that. It is the word that means not only to threaten heavily, are to threaten strongly, but it means that this person has the capability to carry it out. See, see, in law enforcement, I learned something. Like, we would get called to bars to break up bar fights. No kidding. We, we still did that in modern-day law enforcement. Go to bars, break up bar fights. The guy that was the loudest, that was not your problem. In fact, typically, they would shut down, and I've seen them cry many, many times. That was not your problem. It's the guy that's in the shadows with a pool cue who's saying nothing that's going to hurt you when you turn your back. This is not Paul. Paul is the loud guy, but he's the one doing all the damage. So, so he's unique. So, so this is how much he hates Christians. He is threatening them. He is being very bold with his threats, but then he's going after them personally. He, he's not sending his, his evil guys to do his plan. He's doing it himself. Paul is the real deal. Notice who he's going after because I want you to understand who you are. He was going after the disciples. You know, when I was a kid growing up, I thought disciples meant the twelve. That's not the word in Greek. It's the word methetes. The word methetes in Greek means student or pupil. You are not a Christian. You are not a Jesus follower unless you are a student of Jesus. Notice I didn't say follower. I said a student of Jesus. If you do not study this on a regular basis, you are not a follower of Jesus. Because to be a disciple, which those are the people who go to heaven when their physical life is over, disciples are students, are pupils of Jesus. The apostles are the 12. Disciples refer to all believers in general. And disciples are students, are pupils. So this is who they're going after. So, so Paul, Saul, still at this point, his name hasn't been changed. Remember, Saul is his Jewish name. Paul is his Greek name. It comes from his last name, Paulus. And so he's not yet Paul because we haven't had our transformation moment. And so he's still acting as Saul. He went to the high priest. Uh, remember where we are historically? This would have been Caiaphas, but yet Caiaphas shouldn't have been the high priest. I've explained this to you before. According to Jewish law, the high priest should have come from the Levitical line. Well, they had that guy. His name was Ananias. 
However, Ananias is very old. He has a son-in-law. His son-in-law's name is Caiaphas, who is not of the Levitical line, but yet Caiaphas, in case you don't know, is one of the Pharisees who is directly attached to the Roman government. They've placed him in authority. Ananias, seeing the future, understands if the Jews want to flourish financially, we better be friends with Rome. And so what has he done? He's ignored the law of God, and he has started to employ the law of man. And so he has appointed Caiaphas as the acting high priest, even though Caiaphas had no link to this at all. So this is who Saul would have gone to. Saul obviously is influential because he would have been, he would have been granted his request here. So he goes to the high priest, and he requests letters from him to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. A couple key thoughts there. Letters is the Greek word epistole. I often wondered as a kid, you know, when I would read Scripture, the epistles of Paul, the epistles of Peter, what that meant, you know, like the epistles. And here's what was funny. I would ask and nobody could tell me. Um, that's because nobody spoke Greek. It's epistole. It simply means a letter. It's a general letter. So when you see the word epistle, that's the English version of the Greek epistle. It's a letter. And so he's written a letter. Well, here Saul was writing letters before he was writing Scripture. So he's written a letter to the high priest. Hey, will you give me authority to leave our jurisdiction, go up to the synagogues that are up in Damascus six days away, and if I find any people that identify themselves as the way, and you go, the the way? Why didn't Luke say Christians? Well, because the term Christian didn't exist at this point. Christian was a term that the Christians themselves kind of came up with as well. You know, we're, we're little Christ. That was assigned to them outside the church, but it became notable for the church. But at this point in early church history, they were known as the way. Why? Because in John 14, what did Jesus say? I am the way, the hodos. That's the word, hodos. I'm the path. Uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you, there, I am the path. I'm not going to show you the path. I am the path. There, there's not a map. I'm the map. That sounded just like Dora the Explorer. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have thrown that in there. Okay. So, so Jesus was the hodos. He, he, he is the path. He is the way. And so those who were not a part of the church were calling Christians or Christ followers or Jesus lovers, calling them the way meaning there was something outward about them that identified them with following Jesus. And so that was Saul's goal. Hey, give me authority to go to this place where I'm really not in authority because I want to catch these people of the way. So so let me tell you this. So for those outside the church, there should be evidence in your life that you're part of the church. That's what this means. Non-Christians were calling Christians at that point the way because there was evidence they were on the path. There should be evidence in your life for people outside the church to see that you're on a different path than what they're on. If that evidence doesn't exist, you're probably not on the path. This is exactly what the text is teaching us. He's looking for the people on the path. As he traveled and was nearing Damascus, a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. Um, The word that Luke uses here, remember Luke is very, very educated in the Greek in the Luke passage, in the Acts passage, it's the most complicated Greek in all the New Testament. He's very, very smart. And he uses a word that we don't have in English. Um, the word that he uses in Greek, it means to flash, and it's in reference to like lightning. But, but y'all have seen lightning before, right? What happens when lightning flashes? It goes away. I, I lived in South Florida. Did you know Florida leads the nation in the number of people struck by lightning every year? When you get in South Florida, it makes a different sound. This is no joke, no exaggeration. If you've ever been on the beaches in South Florida, lightning has a different sound than what it does in Mississippi. 
it has this electricity sound, like zzzz, and you hear it right before it strikes the guy standing next to you. That's just the way it works. I mean, you hear it. It's coming. And, and, and so it also has a bright flash, and, and you know how, how it is. The rods and cones in your eyes, they kind of get overstimulated, and so the bright flash then looks like a dark spot. That's not this word. Here's what Luke is trying to say. This light that flashes has the intensity of lightning, but it doesn't go away. And we don't have that word in English, so we would have to write, it's like a lightning flash that continues to flash with the same brilliance that in our Bible would be about this thick if we put all those words in there. And so we have to get as close as we can. So it's a flash, but it's a flash that continues to be a flash. It doesn't stop. Y'all remember the old Kodak cameras, right? I saw them at the auction yesterday. Y'all remember the little cubes? And that flash would go off. You couldn't see for the next 30 minutes. I mean, just imagine that continuing. That's this flash. So this is what Paul has encountered. It's one of those flashes that would change you. Notice his response. And this is a very good response. Falling to the ground. Well, falling to the ground would mean just kind of like falling to the ground. That's not it. In Greek, it's the word peepto, and peepto means to prostrate oneself before, meaning this, he went into a position of worship, all because of a light, because he knows what this is. We'll see in just a minute. He really knows what this is. So he goes into a position of worship. He, he is representing physically, I am below you. I am not on your level. So here's Saul headed to Damascus to do one thing, kill Christians, Yet he encounters the source of Christianity, and he only knows one thing to do. I can't crawl low enough to get away from this. And so he, he understands the only thing I can do in response is worship. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Get this, I love this. Verse 5, who are you? And then he answers his own question. Because what comes after who are you in your text? Lord. Okay, is Lord capitalized? He gave him a proper name. He didn't call him Lord in general. Lord in general is Sir. Kyrios, when you capitalize it, means three things, and this is what we talk about all the time. Let me tell you what salvation means. Salvation is not a prayer you say. It's not walking an aisle, signing a card. It's not getting dunked in water. This is obedience. That's not salvation. Salvation is when you agree with God. Romans 10, 9, I confess with my mouth. I agree with God that Jesus is Capital L, Curios. It means three things. Owner, ruler, commander. Some people say master. It's really commander, literally. Let me tell you what that means. If you are truly a Christ follower today, this is what you've agreed to with God. In your own way, in your own time. It had to happen for you in a moment of belief. But you've agreed, number one, let's go backwards, that he is commander. Here's what that means. He gets the right to write the commands. Where do we find the commands of Jesus? You got your Bible with you? Hold it up real quick. Yeah, yeah, I want you to bring it with you. Bring it with you so you got it. Here's the commands right here. All right, since he is the commander, he is also the ruler. What does the ruler do? He enforces the commands. That means you are held to a different standard. You are held to obey the commands, and the ruler is watching and evaluating. So he has the right to make the commands. He has the right then to discipline or reward according to the commands, and he is thus the owner, meaning this, you no longer can live any way you want to live. See, when you confess Jesus is Lord, you're not simply saying, I believe in Jesus. What you're agreeing to God the Father with is this. My life has now come under his authority, and I can't withdraw from that. 
He is the commander, the ruler, and the owner of my life. That is salvation. And you can't soft-serve that. I can't have you say a prayer after me and you get that. Either God gave it to you or you don't have it. And that's why I don't lead you to say certain things because it's not about what you did for me or I had you to do. It's about what God did in you. And so again, here, here Saul is having his salvation moment because what did he just agree with? He falls down in a position of worship and how does he respond? Who are you? Lord, he's already agreeing with God. I know who this dude is. He knows who this is. But Jesus is so gracious and kind. Notice this. If you knock, I will answer. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Notice what Jesus did not do. I want you to go back to where you're from. I want you to go back to a church there. I want you to go tell the pastor what has happened, and he's going to baptize you and have you say a prayer. No, no. He is saved in that very moment because that's his belief moment. What happens immediately after belief? God gives you commands because that's what Jesus does. Now get up and go do what I'm going to have you do. Now he doesn't know the outcome. He doesn't even know yet what he's supposed to do. He does get up, however. Because he knows there's no choice. Salvation is submitting to what Jesus tells you. It is submitting to the path Jesus places you on. It is submitting to where he wants you to go, even though you can't see where it ends. See, in our culture, I want to know the outcome. We're an information generation. That's who we are. We want to know. We do the research. You know, we'll look through 18 pages of Amazon.com before we buy something worth 37 cents. Because we got to know. And yet, this is what Jesus said. He said, I'm not telling you anything but go. Get up and go. You just, you just agreed. You said, Lord. So now I'm going to act as your Lord, and I'm going to put you on the path. And so he puts Paul on his path. Notice this. This is what's so cool. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless. Boy, that is such a weak term. I don't want to be critical here. Inoos is, is the word in Greek. It means dumb... This is how long, no kidding, this is how long the definition is. It's dumbfounded to the point of paralysis due to fear. Dumbfounded to the point of paralysis due to fear. They were scared to death. That's what that means. You ever been so scared you couldn't scream or move? Ta-da! Right here. Remember, Paul's important. He wouldn't have been traveling by himself. Paul would have had an entourage with him. This is a very powerful political man. Here's the deal. They don't see Jesus, but they hear the voice, and they see the light. They don't, they don't see Jesus. they just like, uh-oh, lightning just struck poor Paul, and I'm scared because it's talking. And so they heard the sound, but they saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they took him by the hand and led him in Damascus. I, I don't want you to miss this part. This is a teaching moment. If you're off the path or you're in opposition to the path God wants you on, many times he's going to use people to drag you back on it. Paul, Paul is being led by the hand. Y'all, he, he is not going to Damascus on his own. They are taking him. That is where he's supposed to go. But Jesus is having him taken there. And in verse 9, he was unable to see for three days. Why three days? Because three is the number for certainty. This is one of those things where he thought he was certainly blind. He didn't think it was temporary. He's convinced my eyesight is gone. And so I better listen to this guy that's giving me orders. And so he, he's blind and he didn't eat. He, he was fasting now for three days. But I want to explain it to you this way. See, see, again, here's this idea. 
if you are God's and he has a plan for you when you're in opposition to the path he wants you on, he is going to because he loves you. Again, not trying to get even with you. He's not trying to hurt you, but because he loves you, he doesn't want to discard you. He wants to get you back up on the track because he knows that's what's best for you. He knows his path yields the greatest outcome for him and for you. Let me explain it this way. Again, same time frame, nine, ten years old. How many of you remember the Sears Christmas catalog? You remember the Sears catalog used to come out? Here was the rule in my family. You would take the Sears catalog, you would go to the pages that had stuff on it that you wanted, and you would either fold down the corner of that page or you would circle. Well, I was a very smart kid. I knew, I knew that my family had limited resources. So I figured the more things I picked, the greater chance I would get some of them. And so I would have every page marked. I mean, it was like every page. The boy's toy started here. Every boy's toy had something marked on some page. Well, well, one year, I I did get one of the major things I picked, and that was an electric train set. Now, not not like the wooden Thomas trains. I'm talking about the electric ones. You know, here's how you know they're electric. No kidding, true story. Here's how you know they're electric when you touch something metal and touch the track at the same time. And you smile, and there's like lightning coming off your teeth. I mean... Yeah, 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 no kidding, yeah. It, it wasn't good enough just to put the train on it and cut it on. Yeah, yeah, it was good. It was great. And then I learned if I grabbed my sister, she would feel it too. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. All right, so real electric train, real, real electricity, right? Real electric train. Um, I grew up in the 70s. Y'all, what kind of carpet did we have in our houses in the 70s? And some of you are going, I still got it. No, just kidding. Not going there. What kind of carpet did we have? <laughs> no, we had grass. I mean, literally, it's like, hey. Y'all remember when we used to rake that stuff, not vacuum it, you just raked it? I mean, it's like doing yard work, man. I mean, it was just brute. And I'm still scarred. I'm, I'm, I'm still scarred. In my bedroom upstairs, you know what color my shag carpet was? Red. And I mean like fire engine red, not just red. Red. All over, wall to wall. Y'all shag carpet, red shag carpet in a dude's room. It was just messed up. I don't know what my mama was thinking. Why she would have done that to me. Have you ever tried to build an electric train on shag carpet? Does not work and will create a fire really quickly, you know, so you don't do electric trains on shag carpet. So my dad, my, my dad, bless his soul, can't wait to see him in heaven one of these days. My dad was functional and practical to the core. He had no sense of style whatsoever. So my dad, seeing our issue, goes, oh, hang on, out to the shop. My dad was a contractor. He was a fireman and did contract work on the side, building houses. So there was always wood at my house. Christmas morning, Christmas day, here my dad comes back in the house, four by eight sheet of plywood, and this four by eight sheet of plywood was not you knew it had been used many times. There's holes, splint, I mean, you, oh, I can't tell you how rough this thing was. My dad comes back into the house, and much to my mom's chagrin on Christmas Day, from that point forward, a 4x8 sheet of plywood defined my room. I was cool with it because it covered up the red shag. But, but, you know, right down the middle of the floor. Had to move the bed. Bedrooms weren't real large. Had to turn the bed up against the wall so we could put my 4x8 sheet of plywood down so we could build our train track. And so we built the train track. Man, it's got bridges and animals and all this different scenery. But, but you know what, what happened? Got it off the shag, right? Got it on a very stable surface, but I was eight or nine. And so when the train would go over the bridge and start heading toward the curve, do you think in any moment I ever slowed that train down? (laughs) Give it full throttle, baby. And what happened to it every time when it got to the corner? 
Okay, so you know what I did, right? I got a garbage sack. I threw all that stuff in there and carried it out and burned it. Well, no, of course I didn't. I didn't, I didn't discard my train because it came off the track. It was brand new. And I did. I loved it because my mom and dad gave it to me for Christmas. And I knew that. I knew that it cost them because I had seen it in the Sears catalog. It was a Tyco. No, I, I just, I, with great care, put the train back on the track and then I would start to slow down when I would get to the curves because I knew the train to operate and perform what it was designed to do needed to be on the track. God so loves you that not only did his son die for you, but when you get to the corners and you come off the path of Christianity, so when you make some choices where you say some words that aren't the most righteous, You have some actions that you carry out with your body that aren't the most righteous. You view some things and have thoughts in your mind that aren't the most righteous. You covet and you become discontent and you become bitter or you speak with unrighteous anger. When we go off the track, God doesn't discard us. Now, he will hold us accountable and sometimes he will discipline us, but he doesn't discard us. What does he do? He picks us up and puts us back on his path because he knows this is what's best for you And if I can keep you focused on the path, then the outcome will be great. That's what he does. This is life's journey. But did you know this same Saul, whose name later was changed to Paul, did you know he wrote a whole bunch of the Bible? The New Testament in particular, about 65% of it, almost two-thirds of the New Testament. And you know what he wrote in several different places? He says you are to rid yourself of sin. So, So when you're going off the track, here's what Paul says. God has his role. God gives you salvation and redemption through Jesus on the cross. He then places his spirit in you so you've got power to live according to Jesus. But when you come off the track, because I know you're still a flawed human, I want you to get back on. I want you with this trembling and this fear and this great effort, I want you to work hard to stay on the track so you have a role. Just because you received the Holy Spirit and were given the gift of salvation does not give you a license to go off the track and think it's okay. Yes, is God loving and will he put us back? Yes. But the Bible says he will not be mocked as my heavenly father. And so we are to work hard. We are to try hard not to fall off this path that we know Jesus laid out for us. What does it look like if you're trying hard to stay on the path? Number one, you check the motives of your heart. How do you try hard to stay on the path? Well, I really examine inside me where nobody else can see why I am doing the things that I do. Why is it that yesterday I had a whole ton of our church downstairs at the underground? Why is it Ron and Debbie Hausman very generously donated lots of items to our church? What was the motive behind that? See, that's what God's looking at. He's not necessarily looking at the great outcome. There was a great outcome. What God's looking at is what was the motive? What was Mike and Sue's motive for getting baptized this morning? Did they want to get up there so they could impress you and let you see how spiritually mature they are? No, I know them personally. They both grew grew up a little differently than I did, and here's what they've come to realize. They just simply wanted to be obedient. It's the motive of the heart. Why is it you want a leadership role at work? Why is it you want a leadership role in the church? What's the motive behind that? Why is it we sometimes tell our kids no? 
And sometimes we tell them yes. What's the motive behind those things? Why is it we choose this person to marry? Why is it we choose this job and this career to pursue? Why is it we say yes to these things that we know God's calling us to, but we say no to the others? It's all about the motive of the heart. And and let me go ahead and give you this clarifier. If you're choosing to do anything, and above all else, the motive behind it is to promote self, you're in the wrong place. If the decision you're about to make is above all else going to promote self, that means it's going to give you pleasure even though that pleasure is forbidden by Scripture. It's going to give you resource even though this route is not authorized by God. It's going to give you recognition or fame, yet this is in contradiction with Scripture. So if self is the primary motive, you're on the wrong track. God wants you to work to stay off that track. Number two, by starting out on the right path. Here's the deal. Saul was on the right path and didn't even know it. How many times have you started out on a journey and you think you're going to go do this thing for a career and all of a sudden God has you doing this and you're like, holy cow. I thought I was on the right path, but I'm not. I got a degree in this and I started to pursue it, but all of a sudden I had passion for this and now God has just opened up this window of opportunity. But here's the deal. At least the path you started out on appeared to be right. There was no contradiction in Scripture. No mature believer in your world was going, hey, buddy. Man, you need to really give careful thought to that. Here's the thing I've learned. When God has multiple mature believers come speak into your life and they're all concerned about the exact same thing, you need to put up the red flag. That's how God speaks to us. That's how we get on the right path. Because, see, listen, it is hard to stay on the right path when we're on it. It is very difficult to get on the right path when I don't even start there. At least get started on the right track. Number three by acknowledging that you have authority placed over you. When encountered by Jesus for the very first time, what was Saul's response? Fall to his face and declare Lord. Please hear me. You are not created by God to be free of authority. And the American culture cannot stand it. God has placed multiple authorities. Jesus is the ultimate authority, but you do know God has created different levels of authority. Within the home, there is the level of authority between parents and their children. Mom and dad are the authority. Children, hear me. You better listen to me. And I mean grown children. If your parents aren't instructing you to do something that's immoral, you are to obey them, period. God established government in Romans 12. And he said it's for the protection of the people. If it is not immoral what your government is commanding you to do, what is your response? Obedience. And and the levels, different levels. There's church leaders. There's school leaders. So school's getting ready to start back. Teachers, please hear me. You are the authority. You don't ask kids for permission. You tell them. Because you are teaching them how God has established authority chains. It is your responsibility to hold that authority. And so again, these are authorities. God has placed them. And if I'm truly trying to stay on the track, I'm not always wanting to buck authority. I'm not always wanting to go outside of authority. I'm willing to listen and follow. And then finally, number four, by seeking to be obedient even when the destination is not clear. When Amanda and I first experienced uh, our vocational called into ministry. We didn't know what that was going to look like. I I didn't know. Y'all, I had a resume that would have been the most non-impressive resume in church world because the stuff that I could list, 
was a thousand different ways that I could eliminate every deacon body that I could come across. But I didn't have a whole lot of theological background in mine. A bunch of SWAT stuff and explosive stuff and weapon stuff, but not a whole lot of Bible study. And so I didn't know what the destination was going to look like. But you know, that's not what God called me to. He didn't call me to know how it's going to end. He simply called me to say yes, no matter what the outcome was. So, so here, here's where we're at. Here's where we're going to close. A couple things. Number one, if you're a known Christ follower, you know that you've had your Saul moment. There was this moment in my life. You may not know the date. I don't care. I don't, I don't care about dates. But you know there's been a moment in your life where you said, who are you, Lord? But yet in your heart you knew. I, I, I've known you my whole life. Y'all, I was saved at nine. I knew God long time before I was saved. I knew him. He dialogued with me, and I dialogued with him even when I didn't even know him from a salvation standpoint. And so when I, I, I believed and selected Jesus, it happened for me standing at the back of a door. It wasn't when I said a prayer or was dunked. It was standing at a door. I had a choice moment. And as I looked out into blackness, I said, that is not what I want. I want light. I want Jesus. And when I let go of that door and went this way, that's when salvation occurred for me right then. Now, I had some dialogue with my pastor after that and was baptized, but, but my salvation happened at the door. If you know that that salvation moment happened for you at the door, then, then I want you to process a little bit differently with me. What is it that God may be calling you to right now that you just really can't see the outcome of? It may be the very beginning stages of a relationship. Lord, is this the person I'm supposed to marry? Maybe God doesn't want you to know that yet. God, am I supposed to take this job? Well, you know, ask some very practical questions. Is it something you're qualified to do? Did you cause the door to open or did the door open without you really trying a whole lot? Are you passionate about this thing you're thinking about doing? Because trust me, at some point, the money will not satisfy you more. If you have no passion for it, you will be miserable, guaranteed. Money will not make you happy. Take you on good vacations, but it won't make you happy. And so th these are things as Christ followers. Am I really cognizant of the authority above me? So, so am I respectful to my superiors at work? Am I respectful in my home to my parents? Am I respectful to law enforcement and first responders? These are all authorities. I can tell you right now the answer is no to most of those things I just asked you by our culture. But the church should be different. But you may be a person or there may be multiple persons here this morning that go, Justin, I don't know that I can go back and put my finger on a moment like you're talking about. I, I don't have your story. And even though I do, I do believe in Jesus, I don't know that there's ever been a moment where I went like Saul and like what you're saying where you said, hey, yes, I, I acknowledge you are who the Bible says you are and I place myself under you. I, I don't know that I've had that. Okay, if that's you this morning, I'm going to start praying in just a minute. And when I pray, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to walk right over there to those doors. Because when you get over there to those doors, there's going to be some people there to greet you. We call them a prayer response team because that's what they're going to do. They're going to take you to a room and they're going to pray with you. But here's what they're going to do. They're going to take Scripture, not our opinion, not something we've written. They're going to take Scripture and they're going to say, hey, if you really want to submit to the Lordship of Jesus, just like Saul did, if you want this life where you're on the path that Jesus has created for you, let me tell you biblically how you get there. 
If that's you this morning, I'm going to ask you to walk right over there when I start to pray. And they'll be waiting for you. But maybe you've already done that part, and you're like me. You wake up every day and you go, am I really doing what God has? Am I designed for this? Is this the design? Is this the path? You see, I'm I'm past a lot of those questions. Like, I'm not asking, like, the dating spousal question. We've been together 21 years. I know that we're locked in. I'm not asking the parental questions. You know, have kids, not have kids. Dude, they're grown. I'm just hoping not to mess it up anymore. I'm not asking those questions, but you do know at 54, as long as I have breath, God still has a plan for me. And my job is to figure out what that plan is and then fight to stay on that track. What is it you want me to do? And sometimes it's a longer-term thought, but sometimes it's a day. What is it you want me to do today? How can I encourage today? How can I serve today? How can I be obedient today? How can I impact today? How can I influence today? Here's my concern is that we as a church get so busy, we sometimes quit asking those questions. And then you go to bed every night just worn out and exhausted. And if you were to look back over your day, you didn't really accomplish much after all. And I'm talking from a spiritual sense. You may have done great things at work, and work is ordained by God, but it's not the ultimate thing. And so again, are we asking ourselves the right questions? I want you to ask yourself those questions as we start to pray. So stand with me, and I want you to start asking, Lord, am I doing what I'm supposed to do? Spiritually, am I on the path that you have for me? Am I following your direction? Am I seeking your direction? Do I want your direction? These are the questions we need to be asking, so pray with me.